0: And welcome to the Trust Business Lunch with me, John Williams, Pete Zimmerman's the producer, and Farron Dogs is a frequent guest, the CFP, the founder and CEO at Harrison Wallace Financial Group. Farron, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks, John. I appreciate you having me. How are you doing today?
0: I'm pretty good, and I'm happy to see that other folks are in a good mood, too. The um, (laughs) consumer sentiment, according to the University of Michigan, is pretty high right now, huh?
1: Yeah, it bumped up quite a lot this last, uh, last month. And I think a lot of that is driven by what people are seeing primarily at the gas pump. Um, that's usually a good indicator of, um, you know, that kind of follows the inflation faster, meaning, you know, we're going to see the, the cut in those prices more impactful than we will in like food and restaurants and, and those other types of consumer goods. So hopefully we'll start to see some of those prices come down as well. But it was good to see that um, people are feeling better uh, with their pocketbooks.
0: Um, but hasn't uh, the cost of food been sort of the thorn in inflation's inflation side, the thorn in the president's side? I mean, whatever inflation yeah. is, people, they feel food more than anything else, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think that they... Uh, I mean, while it was nice to see this bump, I don't think and I guess what I'm saying is I don't think they're feeling that yet at the grocery store, so to speak, or at restaurants when they go out to eat. But the fact that they have seen a a pretty good uh, reduction in their energy costs, you know, getting to and from that grocery store does make them feel better. And I think that's primarily why we saw the number we saw today.
0: I kind of wonder why consumer sentiment is so important. Um, the numbers themselves, to me, would be more important than people's perception of them. Although I might be talked <laughs> out of that. What do you What do you make of that?
1: Yeah, I would agree. I think that um, you know how they're feeling about it. To me, almost says, "Well, if consumer sentiment, you know, because the Fed has been so hawkish, right, about inflation." You would almost think the Fed is going to be, this would almost be a reading like, oh, gosh, the consumer's feeling really good, so they're going to get out there and spend again. And so that's going to drive inflation up. So to me, it's interesting that while it's nice that people feel good about the economy and their their pocketbooks right now, at least for the month, (laughs) um, you know, for the long term, what does this do? Does the consumer go back into spending mode? Not that they've really stopped that much, but. But do they ramp it up again? And that would be bad for inflation. So yeah, yeah. Um, I would think it would be more of a, a how do you not not what is what is the real feel, not how are you just feeling in general.
0: So, Markets mm-hmm. are doing well, though. Steve was telling us about the S&P flirting with a record. Mm-hmm. Uh, what am I to make of that?
1: Right. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, this first part of the year that we've seen here in the first few weeks um has been a little bit of consolidation. I, I truly feel it's just been a breather from the big ramp-up that we saw towards the end of the year. And then, of course, we had some you know, concern about, oh, my gosh, the Fed isn't going to cut rates in, in March because we received a little bit of inflationary data and the labor market's not calming off. Um, but I think that a little bit of that has been digested, and people have now gone back to the fact that, well, Overall, things are still looking pretty positive. Uh, we're going to slowly start dollar cost averaging into this market. Um, a lot of new money coming into the market because people who maybe maxed out their retirement plans early in 2023 mm-hmm. have now re-engaged in that, and so we have some new money flows coming in. And um, I'm not not too surprised to see a little bit of this this uh, comeback.
0: By the way, just a little while ago, I want to mention this since you may, as you were listening now, have been listening a little while ago when we were talking about this. Uh, Steve Alexander had a story about Costco and how they're going to check to make sure you're a member when you go in and flash your badge. I said that I don't shop at Costco. There's not one near me. And is that fee to be a Costco member really that significant? I said drop the $100 fee or whatever it is and let more people like me shop there. How much money do they make from that, really? And Nick from Whiskey Acres just texted this to me. Costco membership fee revenue globally. From 2018 to 2023, it goes up every single year. Listen to this. In 2023, the global membership fee revenue of Costco amounted to... Four point six billion dollars.
2: <laughs> well, there's your answer.
0: <laughs> so, like I said, they're very smart to do that. They don't need my money. Uh, in the two previous years, that figure was four point two two, and before that, three point eight eight. Now it's four point five eight billion dollars in fees alone. It's twelve twenty one. This is the Wintrust Business Lunch. We're talking to Farron Dogs, and we're talking about consumer sentiment. And Farron, I was asking you if that jump in sentiment is a real jump, that is, is it really very high now, or is it just a reflection of how low sentiment was the last couple of months?
1: No, that's a great question. And it was a an unexpectedly high jump, and again, attributed, I think, as we mentioned, to kind of energy prices. And truthfully, we are starting to see some of the wage increases keep up with inflation. And so that's that helps the overall consumer pocketbook, but um, you know, if we look back, I think the low uh, on the reading was was June of 2022 when people were feeling the worst about the overall inflation, um, and because of of some of the some of the um, steps the Federal Reserve has taken to kind of quell this inflation and increasing supply and a little bit of reduced demand, all of those factors are starting to see that inflation number come down. And so people are feeling better. And so we've consistently seen that number um, increase. Um, This, as I mentioned, was a little bit higher increase. But I, I was looking back and I guess the average is right around 82 on the consumer sentiment back from when it first started being tracked, which was like 1978. And we're only about 7% off of that average, which really isn't too bad considering what we've gone through in the last 24 months.
0: 82, we're at 75 right now?
1: Right. Mm -hmm. Um, 78 it moved. 78 it came in.
0: Here's just another headline. Stocks and bonds have room to rally, according to UBS. Um, Are equities going to do well this year? Are bonds also going to do well this year?
1: I think so on both counts. Um, you know, this is really the first time in probably 17 years that I've been really utilizing bond ETFs um, and oh. funds because uh, the the investor is being rewarded with higher yields now. And historically, and, and typically in a an environment that we move into, where we may see some cuts in interest rates that generally gives those underlying bonds some some appreciation as well. So this could be a win-win for the bondholder this year. Uh, Again, be careful about the types of bonds and and the the durations. But um, as far as stocks go, if we do start to see rate cuts again, historically that bodes pretty well for the equity markets as well, because the consumer can borrow uh, less expensively as well as the corporations, which gives them room to grow.
0: Yeah, boy, that would be good for the housing market, too. I think uh, we are all going to be more than disappointed. We're going to be surprised if we don't see rate cuts this year. And uh, the question for everybody is how many? Uh, What's your Mm -hmm. guess on that? Where's your head on that?
1: Um, My head says three, um, which I know is a little bit lower than probably what the average expectation is. I know coming into the beginning of the year, there was talk of eight, which I feel, um, or six rather, and um, I just feel that the Fed does not want to put themselves in a position of undoing what they've spent the last 18, 24 months doing, and that was controlling inflation. And if we were to see that many rate cuts this year, and I believe they would have to do them between now in October, because I just don't think they're going to do much around the election. Um, I, I just don't think, I think that it would just heat this, this economy up way too much again. And I don't think they really want to do that. So I, I think three would be reasonable, but I don't see any any problem just kind of waiting and seeing how things are going. and. I know their target is 2%, we're a little over, we're about three and a half roughly on the CPI right now. They don't wanna wait till it gets to 2%, of course, but uh, let's wait till we see some real data that, that justifies some cuts.
0: Yeah, I've been thinking about some of the guests we've had who have been much more hawkish about this than you, and they see, they see six or seven And when Mm. you think about the lag time, though, I mean, the difference between Mm -hmm. the rate cut and it's trickling through the economy, you would think that the Fed would be especially careful about that since it was their hesitancy that got this whole mess going to begin with. So I I think they would be especially appreciative of the uh, sort of timing of these sorts of things and then their impact on the economy.
1: Right. Right. And I look at, you know, In the summer, last summer, we were seeing mortgage rates close to 8%. And we have not, they have come back down like on the 30 year roughly about six and three quarters, six and seven eighths. And we haven't seen a cut. You know, so those have just come down in the expectation that we aren't going to get any more rate increases. And I look back when I bought my first house, it was at seven, seven and a quarter percent. And the, the Dow and the, the S&P was up 9% that year. So, you know, these higher rates can coexist with these good equity returns. I think that the, the, the public and as a whole, we've just gotten so addicted to such low interest rates that we feel it's crazy to have a, you know, a 7% mortgage. Um, and while certainly it does price some people out of the market... Um, there, there's something to be said about having decent interest rates where you can get 4% on a savings account well, in um, a, a healthy economy. You because
0: know? how many of us remembered, it wasn't that long ago, that your savings account was paying one-tenth of 1%? <laughs> right. And right. Well, you might as well just be in cash. I mean, what the heck? That's, that's, you're losing ground at that rate.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been good to see that, especially for the fixed income investor, of course.
0: OK, so then one last thing, then. Uh, what's what's um, a, a reasonable what's a hopeful what's the best mortgage rate out there then? I mean, don't don't bank on three percent. If we don't get to that, let's not consider all of this a, a loss. Uh, but nine percent's too high. What do you think sure. um, a fair number is for people to hope for?
1: I think, um, I think a five and a half rate, um, on a mortgage would be really attractive. And I think that that would be a good balance between getting that first time home buyer into, into a new home. Um, I think the the thing that's hurting that first time home buyer right now is cost of the housing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the house cost. It's not necessarily the mortgage rate and, you know, 30 years ago, we, didn't, we had plenty of supply in the, in, the, in the market, so we didn't have these inflated home prices. But ultimately, I think if you get in that 5.5% rate on a mortgage, I think that's definitely reasonable. And um, I think that bodes for a, a healthy combination of good interest rates on your savings accounts, as we were just talking about, but still great opportunities in the yeah. equity market.
0: Well, that, yeah, I think that's such an interesting number. And that, uh, that sounds reasonable, what you just said to me. And I just think there's a logjam of people that won't borrow the money because they can't get in at a, it, it's 8%. And the people mm-hmm. who are sitting on 3% and would finally say, OK, my next mortgage will be 5%, but I'm going to move now. So that's uh, right. I think that's, right. That's, that's a nice compromise.
1: That's a little more palatable because we're you know, I was reading about a study that's being done where. Empty nesters aren't even moving out of their big homes, you know, these four and five bedroom homes because they don't want to give up their two and three quarter percent interest rate to move to a seven. And yeah. I, who can blame them, right? Um, and that obviously has an impact on the supply for that new family that's looking for a house.
0: Understood. Farron Doggs is yeah. the uh, founder and CEO at Harrison Wallace Financial. You can click on HarrisonWallace.com for his expertise. Farron, nice to talk to you today. Thanks for your help. You too, John.
1: Thanks. Yeah. Have a good weekend. Here
0: is Robert Sevum. He is the president of the Chicago region of Savals, and we're talking about rents downtown. And I think it's more good news today. Robert, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me again. So tell me about the fourth quarter. What does your report show?
3: We had a good fourth quarter. We saw that over the year, leasing activity totaled 8.2 million square feet. And that's important because that was up over 5% from the full year previously in 2022. And in the fourth quarter alone, there was 300,000 square feet of positive absorption versus the year prior. So that's very positive news. We're seeing that available space, in particular in the sublease market, while it has grown over the past several years, is starting to taper off. And so that signals that there is some cautious optimism by companies as it relates to their leasing activity and decision-making in downtown Chicago.
0: Yeah, we're talking about rents in downtown Chicago. I think the number a lot of us just try and latch on to is occupancy rate. Is that a real number, and what does that mean, or what is it?
3: Well, when we talk about rents, it's important to understand the bifurcation. Uh, Like all major urban cores, the Class A trophy market and flight to capital is popular. So companies are looking for great experiences in the buildings that they make decisions to occupy. You've got a number of users who are who are moving into Class A buildings, and those Class A buildings, especially the Trophy and new product, are fewer and further between. And so as a result, those rents tend to tick up a bit higher. They jumped about 1.5% from a year ago. So on average, you know, they're about $50 a foot um, on average. And when you're looking at the class B or lower market, those have tended to go down uh, closer to about $43 a square foot. Again, there tends to be more of a knife fight between those buildings because they may not be seeing the level of activity. So that chasm will likely continue to spread a bit in the coming year. Are people
0: more inclined to go with the more expensive rent, though? I Granted, it has more amenities, but it's more expensive. I wondered if people were economizing with their leases these days. Which is more attractive to the business community?
3: The good news is it's not mutually exclusive. Uh, The newer buildings that are demanding higher face rents, obviously the companies that are looking at going into those buildings look at that as a great value proposition. It's an investment in their business. It's an investment in their people and, and the productivity that those people Hopefully, experience in the space that they're leasing, right? So, recruiting, retention, and culture, uh, and the business drive by having that type of experience. Uh, they are, however, a number of buildings, and one has to know, you know, which buildings they are, and identify, you know, the good owners from those that are struggling. That have invested in B properties, mm-hmm. and that have amenitized those properties, and are attractive for those companies that might not be able to look at those Class A rents, but still want some or much of the same elements of those buildings, perhaps not as new. And so there are incredible leases and transaction terms to be had in the market if you sort of know where to go.
0: Do the buildings that are A and the buildings that are B know that they're the A and they're the B? Is there a big sign out front? I mean, (laughs) I I guess I would imagine what a good building or an attractive uh, lease would look like to me versus something that's a little more dated. But is it literally that? um uh obvious
3: what an a and a b is there's not a sign out uh the the class a buildings tend to be generally speaking newer constructed more recently have newer amenities uh there tend to be more often than not um you know floor-to-ceiling glass the floor plates tend to be you know more modern perhaps more efficient Um, But what you are seeing, and and I like the question, is that some of these second-generation buildings, shall we say, have done a really good job, especially with good institutional owners who have invested in them, of uh, really going through material renovations and upgrading the interiors, upgrading the amenities, upgrading the common corridors. And so, yes, the, the baseline building is still there. The infrastructure may not have changed tremendously. But the cosmetics and the seal um, can be vastly improved. I think the reality of a lot of these newer buildings is that they tend to offer a lot of light and air. They're generally de- uh, developed in locations where you hope that there's not too much obstruction. Some of the older buildings might be in different parts of of the downtown market in submarkets where access to light and air might be more limiting, and therefore that hurts their ability to lease and and it might create some downward pressure on on spend. What's the deal with
0: people not going back downtown at all because they're working from home? Um, Has that sort of reduced overall demand in A or B, just the in aggregate? Is there less interest, though, in having an office downtown?
3: There isn't less interest in having an office downtown. I would characterize it by saying there is more interest in making sure that the office that one has downtown is well-located, And offers the employee base a reason to want to not be at home as much because you're gaining exposure and experiences in the neighborhood or the building where you work that you simply can't replicate at the house. And so if you look at where companies have been moving to or signing leases over the past few years, you see, in fact, that supporting information and that companies really like to be near public transit, near the trains in buildings that can offer these amenities. It doesn't negate the fact that there are going to be some workers that still wanna remain at home and want to spend time uh, you know, working remotely. But I think generally speaking, that idea of working exclusively from home versus being more hybrid is starting to work in favor of well-located, well-amenitized office buildings in downtown Chicago, because again, this is a world-class city, hard to forge relationships and make business deals, so to speak, when you're working remotely at your dining room table.
0: But it sounds like you're not counting where they are, but just the fact, do they have a location downtown, whether or not there's a person at that desk that day. Do I read you right on that? Yes. Um, And uh, here's just something else in your report. It says overall availability stood at Mm -hmm. 27.6%. Does that mean that 27.6% of the available office space is unoccupied? Is that availability?
3: Availability is a combination of direct vacancy. So that is, in fact, uh, buildings that have unleashed floors, as well as companies that have put their space on the market for sublease. So of that 27.6%, the the majority is direct vacancy. And then you have uh, a, a number of percentage points that speaks to... Um, the the sublease market. And in some of those sublease spaces, of course, companies are still partially using that space. But until they find a tenant to backfill that space from which they can then vacate, they still may occupy it in part or in full.
0: Yeah. One last question. So where are we compared to 2019, say, um, either with rents or occupancies? We're not back to where we were, I assume.
3: We're not back to where we were. I think it's important to understand the were part. So if you think about occupancy, we've actually never been 100% occupied in terms of even you know, the fact that uh, we may have had a 15 or 16% overall vacancy or availability rate. Hmm. No one ever uh, calculated that we were using all of our space 100% of the time, five days a week. We were probably closer to 70%. So when you look at those data points, we're not as far off as we think we were, oftentimes when people ask the question, and we might be at 50% or just a little bit over 50% trending to 55, so we're making our way up there. I think if you ask the question in terms of how are we doing from an availability viewpoint or a vacancy viewpoint, we're off by about 12 percentage points overall. And so uh, there has been delivery of new construction during the COVID period because those buildings had started their construction process prior. So what you find is that it's a little skewed since some of those buildings have not all been leased. And so I think you sort of have to look at that. But in terms of how we're comparing, um, we're on the right track. Uh, we're, We're likely not going to be operating in the same way that we did. There's some form of hybrid that will be here to stay. But I think the idea of companies right-sizing, making decisions, supporting the office environment because they feel it is going to support their business and people can collaborate, communicate, and actually do better and be more productive, I think you're going to start to see how that will support an eking back and upward trend of occupancy and return to office. So uh, we'll be very closely monitoring those data points as the, the quarters go on.
0: Robert Seven with some fourth quarter numbers from late last year, obviously. He's the president of the Chicago region at Savals. Nice to talk to you, Robert. Always interesting. Thanks for your help
3: today. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Have a great weekend.
0: More business news now. Here's Steve
4: Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Trust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. Financial services firm Mesereau has renewed its headquarters lease in Chicago, but will reduce its footprint because of remote work. It signed a 10-year lease extension for the space at 353 North Clark, but it will cut its footprint by one-third. grains reports Mesereau will cut about 50,000 square feet from what had been 165,000 square feet headquarters. The firm has been an anchor tenant in the building there since 2009. Mesereau employs about 500 workers, with 300 of them in Chicago. Naperville is getting a new pickleball facility. Utah-based the Pickler will open March 23rd with nine indoor courts and private event space. It's the first of three Chicago area locations planned by the company. The others will go to Mundelein and Villa Park and are set to open later this year. Monthly memberships will start at $109. A similar facility operated by Social Pickleball Fund is opening in Chicago's Lincoln Park later this year and a grant from Lollapalooza will fund six new pickleball courts in Grant Park. I'm Steve Grzanich and that's your Trust Business Minute.
0: Time for the business of food and Steve Alexander.
2: Yep, it's National Popcorn Day. It's a big day for those of us who love to eat it and for farmers across the Midwest too.
5: Exactly, yes. Illinois does produce a lot of popcorn and so does Indiana.
2: Nebraska's up there, isn't it?
5: Yep, Nebraska is almost always number one. You'll get some in in Iowa as, as well. I'd say those are the four biggest.
2: He is a student of popcorn and he'll share some knowledge with us after I thank the Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com for sponsoring us. There has never been a better time to put a Silverado in your toolbox. Madsen Sullivan is on the line. He is a PhD candidate at the University of Illinois in the College of Aces, and he studies popcorn.
5: Yeah, so we studied over 300 different types of popcorn and looked at more than 300,000 genetic variations among them. Why? We, we wanted to look at them to identify let's call it a family tree. We wanted to see what sort of variation exists, essentially trying to see how can we group these popcorns based on genetic similarity, because that can help us predict how different types of popcorn may perform when they're crossbred together.
2: And it turns out that on the corn family tree?
5: When we looked at popcorn's relation to all other types of corn, we found that popcorn was most closely related to The ancestor of corn, a wild Mexican grass called teosinte, And that's something we're following up on right now.
2: So while you're stuffing your face with microwave popcorn or movie popcorn or those tins of caramel and cheese covered popcorn, uh, just know that Madsen and his colleagues are striving to make popcorn even better to eat.
5: So we would like to be able to use this genetic data that we assembled to essentially create elite popcorn lines. And hopefully our popcorn is coming to shelves near you soon.
2: And for popcorn farmers.
5: We might be able to introduce some additional genetic variation, whether for disease. Disease resistance, herbicide tolerance, or other agronomic traits of, of
2: interest. Uh, you seem to really like popcorn. <laughs> Absolutely. I eat it every day. <laughs> Madison Sullivan, University of Illinois. On the food calendar, tomorrow is National Cheese Lovers Day and National Butter Crunch Day. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the business of food on 720 WGN.
0: Got a few minutes to spend with Marissa Jones. Let's talk about Theater Week with the folks from the League of Chicago Theaters. Marissa's the executive director there, and um, for 10 days, starting in a few weeks, right, Marissa?
6: Yes, we're really, we're gearing up, and we're really excited. Uh, It kicks off February 8th through the 18th.
0: So how many shows? I guess all of the theaters will be either having specials or making sure they're up and running. Uh, Just give me some of the highlights or details.
6: Absolutely. So Chicago Theater Week, um, we have a kickoff event on February 5th at Chicago Shakespeare Theater, but Uh, We have over 72 productions across Chicagoland area. That's downtown, suburbs, northwest and south sides. You can get tickets for just $15, $30 or less. Um, So opportunity for everyone to see something on stage.
0: And are some of these discounted tickets or specials or are we just shining a light on what's going on?
6: Yes. So these are special rates. Um, These are special rates just for this time. Uh, we have uh, them all on sale at ChicagoTheaterWeek.com, so you'll be able to check out all the shows that are going on, um, and then we'll, we'll have some interactive time with Chicago Theater Week. You'll be able to get a bingo card and, you know, follow along with different productions that you see around the city, um, but the League is a membership of over 200 theaters across Chicago and Chicagoland area, and so we really get our theaters activated to have these discounted rates so people can experience different types types of theater, comedy, drama, even dance um, on stage and really take as many of their family and friends as they would like.
0: Any highlights or surprises for folks, maybe something they wouldn't normally think about? And- oh,
6: absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. We have um, So we have Downtown Lyric Opera is doing a musical, um, which is actually an opera in jazz um, from Terrence Blanchard about a heavyweight um Boxer Emily Griffith and how he, you know, deals with the complex um, things around his career and being challenged in the ring. And um so we have that at Lyric Opera, um, we have something in the suburbs as well, um at Marriott in the Heights, which a lot of people have probably um connected to the film, but it's actually um a stage play and it was a two thousand eight Tony Award winning musical. Um, from the creator of Hamilton Emmanuel Miranda about the um the vibrant community in New York's Washington Heights neighborhood. So all about um how people get past struggles and live and love um in that area and community. Um so we've got that going on. Um out at the McC- uh Arts Center. We have the Hiplet Ballerinas, which I know a lot of people have probably seen um going around in, in some of the news forums, but they bring uh um, hip hop and urban dance to classical ballet and point technique. So a real opportunity to uh, watch ballet being done to uh, popular songs from the day and rhythms for the African drums. Um so uh, that's a very exciting way to connect theater and dance on stage during this time. Um, we've got Porchlight Music Theater, who's doing Anything Goes, at the Ruth Page Center. Um, So you have, you know, the classic songs that you, that you love to hear, I Get a Kick Out of You, and, of course, Anything Goes, the title number, right. um, with lots of tap dancing and music and comedy. Um, so that's very exciting. And then... Um, you know, coming off MLK Day, we also have a show at the Greenhouse Theater by Impact called Cat and Fifth City, and it's all about um, MLK, uh, Dr. King's visit to Chicago on the Chicago's west side and the riots wow. that erupted yeah. after that visit. So it's told through the eyes of a, of a 10-year-old and how they navigated that journey of those riots after his visit in Chicago. So a little, a little bit of everything and much, much more.
0: Yeah, we got uh, some 200 theaters in Chicago and great deals. Marissa Jones, the executive director, click on what's the website I should go to then, Marissa?
6: ChicagoTheatreWeek.com and theater is with the R-E.
0: Nice to talk to you. Have a great week. Thank you. Enjoy. Actually, it'll be 10 days.